You are listening to the Queens of Quality podcast. This podcast will discuss some of the basic and not so basic impacts of compliance and quality within the pharmaceutical and biotech industries. We have a balance of laughter and education as we discuss the misconceptions about quality assurance within an organization. We are your hosts, Jen and Michelon. Let's get ready to start the show. Welcome back to Queens of Quality. Today, we have our first ever guest on our podcast. So, hi, Jen. Hi, Michelin. And we'd like to welcome Cheryl McCarthy, who is currently on the board of directors of SQA and recently transitioned to consulting from working in-house with a variety of organizations over the past few decades. And she's also recently started her own consulting group called Anchor. So welcome, Cheryl. Hi, Cheryl. Hi. Thanks for welcoming me to this podcast. I'm so excited. I've had a chance to listen to some of the the offerings you put out in the past. and They're really exciting. So thank you for including me today. The introduction of having decades of experience in industry, I appreciate that. I like to consider myself a seasoned veteran and have had a lot of varied experiences over the year working for technology companies, head of quality for a couple of CROs, myself and some sponsor organizations. Been very blessed with my career, every opportunity to learn something and work with great QA folks such as yourself. So thanks for including me today. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. And I appreciate that you consider yourself a seasoned veteran because I want to tell people after my decades of experience, I was a child prodigy. I might steal that one too. Yeah. I started when I was five. (laughs) Look how far you've come. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. So here we are. And one of the things that I wanted us to talk about is we do send out suggestions and things like that. So we talked about maybe discussing some of the hurdles that we see today. And I think that that was one of the pieces that we really kind of glommed onto is, you know, what are some of the hurdles as consultants that we see today in biotech and pharma? What do we see as some of the big pieces that we would really like to convey moving forward? Who wants to start? I think a lot of what I'm seeing as hurdles haven't really changed. You know, there's, we're talking about the same things continuously, just with different words. And I'm really looking forward, actually, to ICHG6R3 coming out. So I think it's giving us a little more specificity where GCP has kind of been called the fluffy of the GXPs that are out there and, and giving us a little bit more guardrails, if you will, for how we're thinking and considering things and putting more terminology into our, our lexicon. I, for me, I, some of the biggest hurdles come back to one of the things that this guidance is really reflecting on is what is the impact of our decisions? So we've always said we need to take care of data integrity. We're looking at subject safety or trial participant safety, as it's now being called. But really, what is the impact of our decisions? We talked risk-based for a long time. Well, now we're starting to see the manifestation of that. Everybody has a risk-based approach. Well, how did you decide that? What was your justification? What happened if it, if something didn't go as planned? How did you react to that? What new decisions did you have to make? And I think that's what I'm seeing both coming from the CRO space and the sponsor world and even, you know, foraying into consulting now. Those questions haven't changed. They're just being asked a little bit differently. I don't know how you guys think about that. I think that that's absolutely true. 
Jen, I really want you to chime in, but I'm going to just kind of try to reference back to what we talked about before we started the recording piece is that we say things, we say things again, and then we say it again, because that's how it seems like we need to get the results is that we have to repeat it kind of over and over again. Kind of reminds me of when you're doing training, right? You tell them what you're going to tell them, you tell them, and then you tell them what you've told them. That's a lot of tells and told. But I think that there's some real reality to that. And a lot of the role of quality professionals I've seen evolve. That's been actually an exciting part of the work that we do is we're becoming more of that resource, that reference, that educator versus the don't do this because I said so kind of things. We're learning more in our ability to tell people some of the impacts of what's happening, helping them make the decisions. And I'm a true believer that if you tell someone what to do, they will do it. But if you tell them why, they will do it right. And I come back to that a lot and kind of dealing with some of the things that, that you just mentioned, you know, you tell them, you tell them again, you tell them again. And I think if we can continue to to increase our conversation and tell them why, we're going to get a lot more buy-in. They're going to ask for our help before something becomes a, you know, the lexicon of everything's a 10 because it's a crisis. They're going to come to you. First time ever happened in my career. I'll never forget that day. Someone came and said, I was thinking about doing this, Cheryl. What do you think? And, and how would I document it if I make this decision? It was like, that was a moment for me because they trusted me to help support that. And I felt like I had, I really was making a difference and impacting the success of the company because we weren't crisis managing. We weren't putting out fire. We were actually planning in an appropriate opportunity because yes, there are sometimes you just can't do what you originally intended to do, and but you need to document it, declare it, justify it, support it, and mitigate any risks. So that was probably one of the coolest days in my career when someone came and asked before they caused a problem. I've actually said on the podcast, I think it was actually last season, that my best day I ever had as a quality professional was when they came to me and did the same thing, Cheryl. You know, So I really appreciate that example because, again, I've always thought of myself as a fixer. And then someone very gently reminded me that that implies that something's broken mm -hmm. if I have to fix it. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's not that bad. Because generally my decision-making process is, did anyone die? Is anyone going to jail or is somebody going to lose their job? If one of those three things did not happen, then we're fine. We'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> it can all be addressed. And to your point, the sooner you know about it, the easier it is to be addressed. And again, you know, sometimes people left our own devices as human beings. If we work in a vacuum, we are imperfect beings. <laughs> and I always say, you know, the we is smarter than me kind of thing. And granted, that's, the grammar isn't very good, but the sentiment is there. <laughs> you know, but that concept has been proved time and time again. I'm a Six Sigma black belt. So that activity is actually part of one of the methodologies within Six Sigma. So having that group participation and knowing that it's not just about having input from a person. It's about making sure that the right people are at the table. And the decision-making piece that you you talked about, Cheryl, about how that granularity is now being provided, you know, because we started at GCP, then we went to the sponsor oversight, then we went to the data integrity, and we're kind of getting little by little, we're getting to the real crux of it in terms of how are we making decisions and how are they impacting the patients and participants for the studies? And then what happened? 
kind of thing. And to be able to ensure that those things are being documented and elaborated on is really important. And I think for me, that becomes the spirit of R3. Yeah. And kind of mean on the, the flip side of that, I was talking specifically with some of the notations in the sponsor oversight section. But even looking at this from a vendor perspective, I had a, a chance a number of years ago to audit a company that was fairly new. They had a technology and they were trying to build their QMF and whatnot. You mentioned about the we being larger than the you know the individual. What I found there was they were getting a lot of people to come in and audit because the technology was very exciting and they wanted to start to use this particular company, but their quality systems hadn't evolved yet. So they were taking advice, if you will, some of it was good and others were more the auditor preference that we've all had an opportunity to share during our audits, which have value. What I was finding was that they were modifying all of their standard operating procedures in reflection to some of that auditor preference versus things that truly were compliance gaps or, or business decisions that they needed to incorporate into their documents. And they were been modified like six or seven times in the past couple of years. So it makes it hard for both the employees as well as those that work with that company to have that confidence that they're they're managing their business. And what it came down to was they didn't have enough awareness of what they were supposed to do to say no, right? So a lot of that decisions that they were making like you were mentioning, you know, people tend to work in a vacuum silos. And in a company like that, it wasn't so much that it was siloed and people were making decisions. There really wasn't that leader to your point of having the right people at the table. They did not have the right quality perspective to say, this doesn't make sense for a company of my size. This doesn't make sense for our business model. Mm-hmm. And give that perspective back to people that were auditing them and also show the confidence that we know what our business is supposed to be versus just, you know, taking some random person's perspective. So I agree with you. I think what we're seeing now is we're bringing more people to the table. We're forcing the opportunity for people to contribute to the conversation, but the decision makers are now being held accountable where you're documenting your decisions, you're providing that rationale, you have a risk-based approach. And then how do you take that and marry it all so that everything is being managed without it being a burden because that's the next step, right? We go from one extreme to the other. We don't document anything. We document everything. And somewhere coming in the middle, again, having that awareness of what is appropriate and, and required. So I think what you were saying about the vacuum, hopefully we're getting farther and farther away from that and people know that we can collaborate and have much more success when we do that. What do you think, Micheline? I love that we're actually getting, you know, in some ways, I feel like we're going back to using the same pieces over and over again. Like we talk about a risk-based approach, but what does that actually mean? And we talk about utilization of having the right decision makers at the table, how we do the implementation of our quality system and process. And I think it's important to note that those go together. You don't just have a system, you have a process too. And We've talked about having all the right people at the table following these pieces and knowing what works for the company that you're with. Mm -hmm. Because we can all tell the stories about where we have seen where they're just answering. It's like a knee-jerk reaction to what an auditor says when and not questioning if it's auditor preference or is this actually within the regulations. I'm so excited to see even before the R3, which is fantastic, but the R2, where we are going to that, we're not going to keep putting out fires. We need to actually think through before the fire starts. How do we take a proactive, preventative approach to 
these questions in quality. Well, these questions in clinical, because it does fall under E6, but I'm so overjoyed to see that because my hope is that that will spread to other parts of biotech and pharma and the guidelines. Yeah. I do think we talked, you, you hit a good word there, which is proactive. Like we've always been very reactive. And, you know, I come from the system space too. And a lot of times you don't plan, right? You just develop code, release something. This looks great. Let's keep going. And the agile methodology that comes with that, but the controls still need to be there. You mentioned people having processes, quality control, quality assurance. And I think the next logical piece to that is even if you have all of those building blocks, you know, Jenna, and we were touching base a little bit on this earlier, was the escalation, right? So that's mm-hmm. part of R3 as well. It's like you need to know those escalation paths. And again, it comes back to who is going to be accountable, who is going to be making the decisions and how does that get communicated so that it's very clear what the impact of all of those activities were. So that was something new for me too, seeing escalation so clearly outlined as an expectation. And so that feels very much like going back to the races. Mm-hmm. I like races. I thought those were fantastic. I'm a process nerd, so I'm all about them. (laughs) Until they change the titles of the people in the races and you're looking at one from a couple of years ago, like, well, we don't have that role anymore. Right. I love that because it's like the racing, not the part where they make changes. (laughs) (laughs) That's not okay. Don't make changes. Because it's very nice to set like, this is where we are. This is where we're going. This is what our goal is. What do we need to do to get from where we are to the goal? Where are the decisions made? How do we set this up? How do we get there in a measured pace and not acting frenetic? So it's funny, we use agile and I use agile as flexible, bendable, but I think that Cheryl, the way you just used it a minute ago was a little bit different where it's code it and release it. And so that's a piece that I think we need to redefine within the QA space as well. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned about the QA person. I think that's the other part. So agile methodology does have some of those controls. They don't always get applied right when you're thinking software. But I do think we have to be flexible. Every clinical trial is not the same, right? We can't look at a phase one versus a, you know, a phase three or a post-marketing study and look at them. There should be some common fundamentals, but there's always the complexity and the uniqueness. I think that's been a challenge, you know, in industry where you know, some things in the GMP or GLP are a lot more structured, they're repeatable or, and, and there are things that are always defined the same way. Where in GCP, where we have pieces of those fundamentals, but how they get applied really varies by protocol. So those are yeah. some of the things that yeah, I've continued to see evolve. And I'm really happy the fact that QA is finally getting a seat at the table and we're not being seen as, I don't want to say the enemy is really not the right word because that that philosophy seems to have gone out, at least in my experience, probably in the last five to 10 years where we're welcome and we're appreciated and we're, we're asked, not for our auditor preference, but more for our quality perspective and helping them put those frameworks in place where they need to be for whatever the situation needs to be. Jen? Yes, I agree. All of it. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's where, again, actually with E8 having come out as well, it allowed me to, to start the small Q quality conversation <laughs> in the design and activities with regard to the studies. And now with our, you know, E6R3 coming out, it's like, man, like now, now it's a capital Q quality. 
which again, it kind of, it's that baby step or kind of a, that evolution from the ICH where they're guiding us along to kind of make sure that we're continuing to evolve. You know, or it, I used earlier that getting into that level of granularity because without informed decision-making, it all falls apart. And unless you have all of the right information, it's not going to work. I've struggled with that because you know, early on in, in my career, I always wanted to have all the answers before I could help someone make a decision. And that's not reality, right? So now the quality culture is, you know, we're seen as more collaborative versus the I told you so, like I mentioned. And I come back to not quite exactly the same, but one of my husband's favorite movies, which is A Few Good Men, when you have Colonel Jessup up there saying, you need me on that wall. Well, they need us there. Sometimes they can handle the truth. Sometimes you're like, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> right. But you know, I think we're more seen as some of those things that happened in that movie were obviously inappropriate. But I think the perspective of they want, they need us. Now they want us. And we're able to continue to build on the impact that we're able to make. So to your point, you know, we're being, at least I'm seeing, we're being asked to be part of conversations sooner. We're being brought to the table in different discussions we might not have contributed to in the past. Still making sure, you know, clinical QA can have a function and then the quality and compliance corporate wise, you know, there's still that definition between the two. So there's not the bias in, in the perspective there, but just really embracing quality as a whole and, and seeing where we can, my personal perspective on this is like, I see quality can be a facilitator, right? We know the rules, we know the regulations, we know some best practices, but we don't have all the answers coming back to what you said. Like I wanted to know everything before I sat down and did something, but we can be the person that can sit in the middle with these groups. Have you thought about this? Do you consider this? The regulations say this, the guidances say this, how does this work for you? Tell me, and I hear what your counterparts are saying. Oh, there's a commonality. Let's focus on that and use our tools and our skills within our toolbox as quality professionals to you know, continue that quality culture. And we can get to a point where the company as a whole is mitigating risk to the best of their ability. Absolutely. Because that's really our kind of ultimate target, right? Is to ensure compliance, quality output, quality product. And it really is at the end of the day, all about the patient. So we have to make sure that that's where our ultimate target is the patient. So I'm going to steal your movie reference, Cheryl, in terms of a few good men. One of my favorite or one of the pieces that made me realize that I, yes, I am a quality professional <laughs> is when Noah Wiley is on the stand and he has the code book. So I, I don't know if it was the Kevin Bacon or the Tom Cruise character, but one of them has the book saying, this is the SOP manual for, you know, they said, tell me how you get to the mess hall. He's like, there's no SOP for that kind of thing. And he's like, oh, well, you know, I just follow everybody this and that. It, just because you don't have a process, what that tells me is just because you don't have a process doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do kind of thing. You may not necessarily need a process for some of that right decision making. To continue with the example, you need to be nourished and take care of your body and you, as the machine, as you kind of, you know, I'm sure soldiers have to take very good care of their bodies. <laughs> I was never one. I don't know, you know, but as a human being, I know I should eat well <laughs> and, you know, know how to fuel that. That doesn't mean I have to have an SOP in order to do it. <laughs> I wish my children came with a user manual and SOP. <laughs> that, that didn't happen. But you're right, though. I think, again, it comes back to having an awareness of where 
procedures and controls need to be documented to prevent bad things from happening to our subject trial participants, uh, medicines on the market, medical devices. I'll, I'll never forget we had someone at a, an annual meeting for the association that Michelle referenced earlier turned around, he had had a brain tumor and he turned around to us in the audience and said, thank you for what you do. Because I think a lot of us, we don't go to work to do a bad job. And I think there's a very inherent personality trait, especially among quality professionals. Now that we've moved away from kind of the teacher dictator type of perspective to the teacher consultant perspective, where we matter, what we do matters. And I think that's the joy in the day of, of trying to just make a difference. And to your point, like, I don't need an SOP necessarily for every little task, but thank you for inviting me to the table. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to, to you know, help advise and provide that insight. And, you know, the more that we have that opportunity, the more credible we become, the more our teams trust us and we all benefit from that. And you're talking about the, the auditor preference piece too. You know, because again, as a consultant, I've been able to have a little more freer conversations, sure. you know, than, you know, what I was able to in-house because again, you have different guide rails in-house, you know, because depending on how large your organization is and your corporate culture, et cetera. Fine. As a consultant, you know, I would say, you need to be careful about this. And they're like, oh, is that a finding? I'm like, it's not a finding because you're not there yet. But if this happened and that happened, you're going down a really slippery slope really quick. Mm-hmm. And they're like, huh? <laughs> you know, it's not a finding. It's my recommendation to you, you know, and that's where I appreciate the recommendation section, you know, that I typically put in terms of a, um, a section in my my reports because you mentioned it too, Cheryl, it's that whole call me in when it's a little bit of a thought maybe versus this huge boulder rolling down the hill <laughs> kind of thing because that way it's a lot again it becomes a lot more collaborative it ends up being a much not necessarily a pleasant situation but definitely not nearly as traumatic as some of you know I, I've been on you know projects where I needed to go on vacation after that you know I know those yes maybe a little therapy but that's okay you know I was going to say therapy in a spa, man. <laughs> We're closing this project and I'm going to therapy and then do a spa. Mm-hmm. I have a massage therapist on speed dial and I'm serious, but would you make a point to, you know, a directed or for cause audit has a very different tone to it where some of these others where there are opportunities for improvements, how I look at this. Most of the time we go out and do an audit, a contract's already been signed or you're doing some type of quality issue, something's already been established and you're kind of managing mm-hmm. that loving forward. I've hosted many audits within the CRO space and conducted many on behalf of sponsor companies. And I think no matter what the scope of the audit is, I always take them as an opportunity to learn something and to teach something. So they become more, again, if you have that collaborative approach and you can show that what you're saying they can relate to. So I think that's another skill for for auditors as we look at some of these decision-making things that are coming up in, in the guidances in the risk-based approach is really being able to communicate well our perspective on things and they don't have to take it, but at least we've, you know, we've taken the time to communicate. So hopefully they're thinking about it and they have a little more awareness of potential impact to them for future, as you said, before the boulder comes down the hill. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've always said that my biggest advocates in house have been people who have been through very painful inspections mm-hmm. because they don't want to have to go through that again. Right. So the boulder went over them. Yeah, the same thing with audits, internal audits. And there's been some shock to people as well because they were always told everything that they did wrong and they weren't actually informed of what they did right. So again, unless it's truly an egregious case and it's for cause, then you have a very different perspective and there's rationale for how you treat something like that versus, again, these are these are opportunities for improvement. It makes everybody better at the end of the day and to be so destructive in how you you manage that. Uh, I used to say that people say, you're the nicest auditor I ever met. It's like, once you get my report. And I'm like, no, I'm really, I'm kidding. Because again, I've never been that nitpicky person. Like you have, you didn't sign this document six years ago. There's no, I mean, it's like any documents in the last six years, we'll have a different conversation. Right. Right. So it's really about that perspective and being able to communicate to those folks who feel like they got run over by the boulder that we're really here to help you. I think that that's a really important point to bring up also is that we're not there to tear you down. And we've talked about this earlier in this season as well, how this season is more about the culture of quality Mm -hmm. as opposed to the framework. Like last season, we were setting the framework. This season, we're talking about, it makes me laugh every time, on what's so often called like the soft skills of quality. And it's like, there's nothing soft about this. There's not a thing, nothing, zero, zip, zilch, nothing is soft about this. And it's so important because how many companies have we worked for where all you ever hear in your one-on-ones, in your annual reviews, in your team meetings is all of the stuff that you're doing wrong? Yeah. How does it react to that? That not makes our lifestyle work environment. Like nobody that, wants that. And it's not beneficial either. I mean, obviously if you know in our skills, people need to learn and there's pieces of that. But when you're coming at to that quality culture that you mentioned, one of the best things I did in my career is I had an opportunity to work with a certified trainer. So she had all of the different skills and she taught actually a class to QA professionals on training the trainer. And that was I learned so much from that in the language and how to get people to critically think, which again, we can definitely use as part of this culture. And it became less confrontational and more conversational. And that's, if we can get to that in all that we do, I will have enjoyed my career immensely. Absolutely. Not that I haven't already, but I think that's where I'm seeing the benefit to having it being conversational. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you coming and being our first guest. This has been really fantastic. Thanks, Cheryl. This is wonderful. I learned so much from both of you. Again, listening into your podcasts and having some opportunity to work with Michelle Ann in the past that I appreciate what you do. I think it's important to continue to get the message out there in any way that we can, that we can make a difference. So thank you both. And I appreciate the opportunity. So if anyone has any questions, comments, concerns, please feel free to contact us at www.metisconsultingservices.com. And if you have any comments or questions for Jen or Cheryl, we'll be sure to pass them along. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Queens of Quality podcast. To continue the conversation, 
please follow our LinkedIn profile, Metis Consulting Services, or for additional resources, visit our website at metisconsultingservices.com. You can listen to the show free anywhere you find podcasts. Love the show? Don't forget to subscribe, like, review, and share with others. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.